Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. This week, we continue with our sermon series titled, Destructive Decisions, How to Avoid Life-Altering Mistakes. This episode is part two of the series, as Senior Pastor Rob O'Neill shares three biblical ways to discipline our desires and avoid the bomb of moral failure in our lives. Now here is Pastor Rob. Well, today we're thinking about the question, how do we discipline our undisciplined desires? Because you see, undisciplined desires contributed to Samson, the judge, his life exploding like a supernova. I want to show you a picture today. This is a picture of the Crab Nebula, which is the remains of a supernova that happened nearly a thousand years ago. Now, a supernova happens when a star much larger than our sun exhausts the fuel at its center. As it exhausts that fuel, the gases on the outside of the star begin to collapse inward. As they collapse inward, they build up pressure, and the pressure turns to heat, and eventually the heat causes a catastrophic explosion, a supernova. It is one of the most brilliant objects in the sky when it happens. When the Crab Nebula formed a thousand years ago, it was so bright that you could see it during the day. Supernovas are brilliant, explosive deaths. Samson's life and death was very much like a supernova. His life was, first of all, massive. Samson was born after a promise was given by an angel. He possessed great strength. He possessed great skill in battle. He possessed great charisma, and he had a calling from God to observe a vow and to begin delivering his people from the Philistines. But Samson's life did not live up to its potential. He refused to embrace the mission that God had given him in life, and he found himself in a Philistine jail in their custody. And then his death happened in brilliant, spectacular fashion. Samson was performing for the Philistines' pleasure, and he was able to knock down the temple of their god, Dagon. It collapsed, and it killed thousands of Philistines and himself. Samson's death was a brilliant, explosive event. It was a supernova, if you will. Now, what led Samson's life to ending in a supernova like that? It was moral failure. And the question is, what then is a moral failure? Last week, we began to define what a moral failure looks like. Moral failures happen when we break moral standards. We, for instance, may do something that we were strongly expected to not do, or we may not do something we were strongly expected to do. Now, moral failures have life-altering consequences for us. What produced the supernova-like moral failure in Samson's life? Well, last week as we began looking at the life of Samson, we discovered that in part it was unfulfilled potential. Samson refused to embrace the mission that God had given him in life, which left him bored, and boredom led him to making destructive decisions that had life-altering consequences. 
This week, as we continue studying the life of Samson, we are going to find that undisciplined desires led him down a destructive path as well that began to produce these life-altering consequences. And that leads us to ask today, how can we discipline our undisciplined desires? And I want to suggest to you three ways to discipline our desires and avoid moral failure. Three ways to discipline our desires and avoid moral failure ourselves. You see, we all have desires. We all have things that we want. And when we begin wanting things, some of the things that we want are bad. Some of the things that we want are bad for ourselves. Some of the things that we want are bad for others. Some of the things that we want are are simply going to be destructive. They, They are wrong for us to want in the first place. But then there are times that we allow those things to control us. We choose them consistently. We choose them frequently. We choose them freely. And undisciplined desires in those moments have taken over our lives. And that's when those undisciplined desires can lead to destructive decisions with life-altering consequences. And so as we think about undisciplined desires today, we want to look at them through the lens of the gospel, and we will find that the gospel confronts our undisciplined desires. And we will find that following Jesus changes our lives and changes our outcomes. We begin by looking at Samson, and we recognize, though, in Judges chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, something had to happen. Judges 14, verses 1 through 4 again. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now, get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Something had to happen. Israel, you see, was in mortal danger. In those verses, we read about the the town, the village of Timnah. Now, I have to recognize in the geography of, of ancient Israel, Timnah was just a few miles away from one of the Philistines' most important cities. At the same time, Timnah was on the border between two important tribes in Israel. It was in, if you will, the heart of Israel. And yet, as archaeologists study the record of this period in history, as they look at the Israelite town of Timnah, all the artifacts they find are Philistine artifacts which means that the Philistines had taken over Timnah, completely owned it. Worse, it implies that the people of Israel were okay with what was going on. The people of Israel had become comfortable doing life with the Philistines. They did business with the Philistines. They intermarried 
with the Philistines. They worshiped alongside of the Philistines. The archaeological record indicates that the Israelites were becoming Philistines themselves. They felt entitled to live comfortable lives in fellowship with and in harmony with their pagan neighbors, which meant that if all Israelites became Philistines, God's unique people, Israel, would have ceased to exist. At this period in history, Israel came this close to cultural extinction. God, of course, wasn't going to let that happen. Something had to happen. Now, the same thing can be said about the life of Samson. Something had to happen with Samson because Samson was doing what was right in his own eyes. Now, as you read Judges 14, verses 1 through 4, you notice that he is in the Philistine town of Timnah, the judge of Israel, and when he's there, he sees a Philistine woman, and he likes what he sees. He doesn't meet her. He doesn't talk with her. He sees her, and he likes what he sees. He goes home to his dad, and he tells his dad that he wants his parents to get this Philistine woman for his wife, at which his parents push back and ask, could you not find somebody from inside the covenant community of Israel to marry? Is there not somebody from Israel who would make a good wife for you? But Samson is determined to marry this woman You see, his parents understood the fact that if Samson married this woman, he was going to be marrying a person of another faith. And Samson's faith was already weak and wobbly to begin with. Marrying a person of another faith would cause that faith to falter. And Samson was running headlong into what we know that when we date and marry people of other faiths, it has potentially disastrous consequences for our faith and the faith of our families. But Samson was determined to do it because it was right in his eyes. In other words, it's what he felt entitled to have and to do. This is the mentality that characterized all of Israel at this point in history. In fact, what the Bible says about Samson is the same verdict that the Bible passes on the entire nation of Israel repeatedly in the book of Judges. It is the last word that the book of Judges has on Israel. In Judges chapter 21, verse 25, it says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Samson was just like Israel. He felt entitled to do what he wanted to do. Something had to be done. The Spirit of the Lord began to stir and work because something had to be done. But as we step back from this and ask, how then can we discipline our own desires? It leads us to a first principle that we can find today in Samson's life. And that first principle is identify your own sense of entitlement. Israel felt entitled. Samson felt entitled. To feel entitled means that I want what I want, despite whether I have earned it or not, whether it's good for me or not, and whether it is good for you or not. 
When I am entitled, I really have no concern for you, for your needs, and for your wants. When I'm entitled, I may find myself thinking I'm entitled to a promotion, whether I've done anything to deserve that promotion or not. I may think that I have worked hard and I am due a break, whether that break is coming or not. When I am entitled, I think, I want what I want. I do not care what you want or need. My needs, my wants come first. But entitlement thinking doesn't work for very long in our lives. Some people, for some period of time, will go along with our sense of entitlement. But eventually, if we behave and think in an entitled way, people are going to say no to our sense of entitlement. And our entitlement leads to bombs going off in our lives. So identify and confront the sense of entitlement that there may be in your own life. But now as we continue to think about the life of Samson, what we're going to discover is that there are multiple small explosions going off in his life along the way before the great grand supernova at the end, and that these explosions are, in a sense, warning signs. Samson, in a sense, is very much like Wile E. Coyote standing in the middle of the desert with a piece of dynamite in his hand. Now, you remember Wiley Coyote from Warner Brothers cartoons, probably. Wiley Coyote is on a mission to catch Roadrunner in most of his cartoons. And he does so through plots to, let's say, bring about the demise of Roadrunner. A lot of these plots involve explosive devices. So Wiley Coyote gets a piece of dynamite, he lights it, he puts it under a plate of bird seed, hoping that Roadrunner is going to come and eat the bird seed and end. And the interesting thing is we know how those plots end. Every time Wiley Coyote lights a piece of dynamite, that thing is going off in his own hand and it's going to blow him up. And so if you see Wiley Coyote in the middle of the desert standing there with a piece of lit dynamite in his hand, it should be a warning sign. And Samson the judge in Judges chapter 14, repeatedly is like Wile E. Coyote. He's standing there with a piece of lit dynamite in his hands, and there are warning signs that he should be attending to in his life. It should be a warning sign when Samson finds his hands in a corpse. You see, Samson went back to his parents and told them that he wanted this Philistine woman for his own. And so his parents eventually agreed to go to Timnah and try to negotiate a marriage contract for him. So they set out for the village of Timnah. Along the way, they come to a vineyard. And at the vineyard, they are somehow separated for a period of time. And as Samson is alone in the vineyard, he sees a young lion who roars and charges at him. The Spirit of the Lord comes on Samson, and he gets supernatural strength, and he tears the lion limb from limb. He kills the lion, and then he goes back to his parents, and he says nothing about what's happened. They continue on their way to Timnah. They negotiate the marriage contract successfully and return to their home. 
A bit later, they are on their way again to Timnah to celebrate the wedding, and they come again to the vineyard, and once again, they're separated, Samson's parents from Samson. And alone again in the vineyard, he comes to the carcass of the lion that he had previously killed. Surprisingly, the lion is filled now with a colony of bees, and the bees are making honey. Now, this is the point that it's important for you to understand that Samson was a Nazarite. He was observing the Nazarite vow, which meant that he was dedicated or consecrated to the Lord. The Nazarite vow, keeping that Nazarite vow, led to his great strength. But it had three components. Samson could never touch a corpse. He could never drink alcohol, and he could never cut his hair. And so Samson sees this lion corpse filled with honey, and he reaches down and he puts his hands in to get the honey, and he eats the honey. Warning sign, Samson the Nazarite finds his hands in a corpse. It could have, should have been a warning sign too when Samson found himself waking up in a drunken stupor at a Philistine party. You see, Samson and his family continued together on to Timnah. And once they reached Timnah, Samson did what all good Philistine young men do. When they have a wedding to celebrate, they throw a feast. And to ensure that Samson followed Philistine custom, the Philistines of the city of Timnah gave him 30 Philistines to party with him to ensure that Samson, the Israelite, followed Philistine custom. Now, when the Bible says that Samson threw a feast, what they mean is that he threw a drinking party, a seven-day drinking party. And remember, the second part of the Nazarite vow is that Samson never drink alcohol or even touch things produced with grapes. And yet Samson engages in a drinking party with Philistines. Samson, the judge of Israel, is partying with the Philistines, his mortal enemies. Warning sign. The judge of Israel is waking up in a drunken stupor at a Philistine party. But then, as if these warning signs weren't enough, waking up at your parents' house when you're supposed to be at your honeymoon should serve as a warning sign. Samson, wanting to entertain his guests and engage with them, made a bet and proposed that, that they exchange 30 articles of clothing if the guest could solve a riddle or not. If the guest could solve the riddle, Samson would give each one of them a new change of clothes. If they could not solve the riddle in seven days, they each owed him a change of clothes. Samson told them the riddle because they accepted the bet. Four days passed, and his Philistine guests could not uncover the answer to his riddle, and so they went and applied extraordinary pressure to Samson's fiancée. Get the solution to the riddle out of Samson. And Samson's fiancée pushed and pulled as hard as she could. She finally got the answer to the riddle out of Samson, and as soon as she got the answer to the riddle, she told the Philistine guests, and the Philistine guests went to Samson and told him the solution to the riddle, and he was beaten and betrayed. Samson decided to keep his side of the bet, though. 
So he killed 30 Philistine men and took their clothes and gave them to his guests. But then knowing he had been betrayed by his fiancée, he went home to his parents' house. Warning sign, waking up at your parents' house when you're supposed to be on your honeymoon because your fiancé has betrayed you should probably get your attention in life, that something is not right. So how do we discipline our own undisciplined desires? The second thing we do is pay attention when God gives you a warning sign. You see, God gives us warning signs in life that our undisciplined desires are going to have consequences in our lives. There are going to be moments in our lives when we recognize that we are wily coyote standing in the middle of the desert with a lit piece of dynamite in our hands. That thing has gone off in our hands before and we know that there are consequences down the road and we must attend to the warning signs that God gives us in life. But it's not purely about the way that we think about our undisciplined desires. There is an activity of God that changes those undisciplined desires in life. Sanctification, you see, disciplines our desires. Sanctification is defined by a theologian, Wayne Grudem, this way. Sanctification, he writes, is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Sanctification, you see, is the process whereby we become holy. We know who God is. God is holy. And God who is holy calls us to be and become holy. We are not holy on our own. God calls us to be holy. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, God tells his people Israel this word for word. He says, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am, look at that, holy. Now, lest you think this applies to Israel only, Jesus reaffirms the same principle in John chapter 14, verse 15, where he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so what we have here is the process of sanctification. Sanctification is learning to obey our Lord. Sanctification is the process of becoming holy of being made holy and embracing personal holiness. Sanctification is the process whereby God disciplines our undisciplined desires. Sanctification, though, is first and foremost God's work. And to understand how it's God's work, we turn back to God's story from creation to conclusion. In chapter one of that story, we remember that God made us and the world and everything in it. And when God made us, he made us to be holy as he is holy. But then in chapter two, brokenness. We remember that we sinned, we rebelled against God. And when we rebelled against God, we left that holiness and became unholy. Chapter 2 also reminds us that we try every way in the world to become holy again, but we cannot become holy on our own. And so we come to chapter 3, Jesus. God sends his son Jesus into the world, and Jesus lived a perfect, sinless, holy life. And then he died in our place to pay the price for our sins so that we could be forgiven. Then in chapter 4, the church 
As we become followers of Jesus, chapter 4 of the church reminds us there is a downward arrow in that that reminds us that God sends his Holy Spirit into our lives. And God's Holy Spirit, once we become followers of Jesus, helps us to be and to become holy. And then there's an upward arrow. And that upward arrow reminds us that in response to God sending his Holy Spirit into our lives, we live holy lives now for his honor and glory. Sanctification is God's work. Much of God's work in sanctification is done in a moment. It begins in a moment. Because you see, in a moment, we are forgiven. In a moment, we are reconciled to God. We are regenerated and given new lives, and we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. In a moment, all of that happens. In a moment, you see, God takes the holiness that belongs to Jesus and puts that holiness on us. He imputes God's Jesus' holiness to us, declaring us holy by his sovereign work. And from that point forward, the New Testament refers to us as saints, as sanctified ones, as holy ones. We have left behind an old life and we are living a new life fueled by Jesus' holiness. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, where he writes, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We're dead to our old way of life and the slavery that sin held on us is over. We are now alive in a new way, free from slavery to sin and free to choose God and to choose personal holiness. All that happens in a moment by God's work. But sanctification continues to unfold over time in our lives. Wouldn't it be great if just in a moment we were completely holy and never wanted to sin again? But we know that that's not the case. We know that undisciplined desires dog us for the rest of our lives. We still have a part of us that longs to sin. Paul talks about this. He says there is a change that is continuing to happen in our lives. Paul talks about the fact that he longs to think and behave in a holy and heavenly way, but there is still something in the future ahead of him, something to which he must still press forward. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, Paul writes, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We're declared holy in a moment, but it takes a lifetime to be shaped into holiness. And holiness involves work on our part. Theologian and philosopher Dallas Willard writes about this work in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines. He talks about daily practices for us as followers of Jesus. Daily practices. In some way, that involves living Jesus' lifestyle, the things that Jesus has called us to do, like turning the other cheek and laying down our life. That's daily practices that we engage in. Daily practices also, in a sense, refer to spiritual habits that we have, disciplines, like studying our Bible on a daily basis and praying and worshiping regularly. These daily practices, these disciplines, help us to understand and apply the lifestyle of Jesus to ourselves. 
But daily practices also has to do with trying and practicing the way that athletes do. Willard writes about the fact that children look at athletes and stars and they want to be just like them. And so they try to lift and throw and run the way that the athletic stars do. But the simple fact of the matter is that you cannot show up at a field on a Saturday and throw like a major league pitcher does. You can't show up at a track for a track meet and all of a sudden run the way an Olympic sprinter does. Because you see that sprinter and that pitcher have been out there day after day after day practicing and honing their craft. And Willard says, those are the daily practices, practicing the lifestyle of Jesus, practicing the disciplines of the spiritual life and getting in there day in and day out that shape holiness inside of us. Because you see, sanctification involves God's work and it involves our work. Sanctification requires that we make choices. You see, when we become followers of Jesus, we love the benefits that we get. New life and eternal life. But along with the benefits that we get, there are choices that we make to embrace what it is that God is offering to us. In 1 John, we read about these choices. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, we read, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We embrace purity. We embrace personal holiness as a way of life. And embracing purity and holiness means that we must choose to leave aside habitual sin, those undisciplined desires in life. First John chapter 3, verse 6 describes it this way. It says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. So sanctification, in some ways, is God's work. It happens in a moment. In some ways, it happens over time. In some ways, it is our work. And in some ways, it involves our choices. Now, the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament tells us what happens when we allow undisciplined desires to rule in our lives. Proverbs, the book of wisdom, tells us that when undisciplined desires take over in our lives, they go off like a bomb, like a ticking bomb. You see, the book of Proverbs is, con is filled with one example after another of the way that giving in to an undisciplined desire leads us down a pathway toward life-altering consequences. Undisciplined desires are like moral failures going off in our lives, and we have the ability to lose everything. Undisciplined desire can lead us to lose our jobs, can lead us to lose our friends, can lead us to lose our spouses, it can even lead us to lose our families and the work that God has given us to do in our lives. Undisciplined desires leave us standing in the middle of the desert like wily e. Coyote with a piece of dynamite in our hands, but it goes off and it has catastrophic supernova-like influences in our lives. Proverbs says that undisciplined desires can be like a bomb ready to go off in our lives. But Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, imply that we can defuse that bomb. 
I've been asking you, some of you, to memorize not just Proverbs 3, verses 7 and 8, but Proverbs 3, verses 1 through 8. And verses 1 through 6 remind us that the bomb of moral failure can be diffused in our lives. Listen to what those verses say. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Length of days. Peace. Favor in the sight of God, success in the sight of man, straight pathways. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 implies that we can diffuse the bomb of destructive decisions and undisciplined desires in our lives. How do we do this? How do we discipline our undisciplined desires? Well, the third thing that we need to talk about today is something that we need to know and remember. Number three, discipline your desires to diffuse the bomb of moral failure. Knowing that moral failure leads to a bomb that could go off in our lives is critical for us to remember but knowing that the bomb of moral failure doesn't have to go off in our lives is important as well. There is an alternative. And the verses that we are memorizing together in Proverbs 3, verses 7 and 8, make that alternative clear. Proverbs 3, verses 7 and 8 say, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Fear the Lord, which in large part means obey the Lord, which means choose, choose. That's our part in disciplining our undisciplined desires. Disciplining our undisciplined desires means that the bomb of moral failure will not go off in our lives. Let's discipline our desires for God's glory. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.